0: Du lytter til live fra Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og mit navn er Lise Hansen. I denne podcast skal du møde det, som nogen vil kalde hverdagens helte, nemlig klimaforskerne. Som del af vores videnskabssalong, hvor vi inviterer eksperter ind i den gamle læsesal til at give nye perspektiver på verden, har vi i denne omgang allieret os med to forskere, som har særligt fokus på klimaet og klimaforandringerne. På den ene side har vi Olaf Corrie, som forsker i international politik og miljø. Corrie er optaget af klima- og miljøteknologi og sikkerhedspolitiske dimensioner, med fokus på geoengineering, når man kunstigt griber ind i klimasystemet. På den anden side har vi professor i russiske miljøstudier, Vili Pekka Tynkønen, som står i spidsen for en forskningsgruppe om det russiske miljø, med fokus på energi- og miljøpolitik, samt politik, magt og kultur i Rusland. Samtalen er ledet og modereret af Charlotte Pedersen, direktør i det udenrigs-politiske selskab, og det er en fagligt meget inspirerende samtale om hvilke klimaudfordringer, der står for døren, men også hvordan klimakrisen overraskende nok måske kan skabe mere fred og samarbejde på tværs af landegrænser. Rigtig god fornøjelse.
1: I'd like to start with you, uh, Olaf, if I may to what degree are climate change actually in affecting international relations and geopolitics?
2: Thanks, Charlotte, and thanks for the invitation. Um, it's a great honor to be in these hallowed halls. I feel like I'm in a Harry Potter film. Um, but I live in Cambridge, so I'm kind of used to that ambience. So my job has become a lot easier recently because it used to be hard to explain to people how climate change and environmental politics had anything to do with geopolitics and security politics. Um, There used to be a time, I don't know if any of you can remember, when the environment was considered a sort of soft issue. It was a low politics question, and it wasn't high politics, security, uh, national interest. Those days are gone. Um, and actually it's not so surprising when you think about the word geopolitics um, my discipline, international relations, for a long time forgot about the environment, forgot about the natural world, abstracted away from the fact that competition between states and cooperation between states happens on a planet made of whatever the planet is made of Um, and In the 80s, when the environmental question came onto the table, it was a kind of a new issue. But if you go back to the history of the discipline, it began being called geopolitics, which comes from geography and the politics of the earth. And the old geopolitics thinkers, they thought that you could read world politics by looking at a map. They thought that the key to understanding world politics was to look at how the continents were connected, separated by mountain ranges, by seas, by oceans, etc. All that was kind of kicked out uh, after the Second World War, and my th- my subject became a social science about the social world. But now there's a return to the idea that uh, the way that we act politically and specifically in terms of the international um, is incredibly bound up with the way that the environment and the earth system um, plays into that. So you've got the international system playing into the earth system and the earth system playing into the international system. Which seems obvious once, you, once you've gotten on to that but all the ways we have of theories and, and, and ideas and history... Uh, stories we tell about international politics have more or less forgotten that fact. So how do they play together? The most obvious one, I guess, that people would think of is the, the risk, the idea that we might be heading towards climate wars. So the idea that climate turbulence will translate into international turbulence. This is a, a very, uh, I think, sort of seductive idea, but I don't think it's particularly... Um, it's not a particularly helpful idea as yet. So people have framed, for example, the Syrian conflict as a climate war, on the basis that droughts, um, droughts from around the mid noughties so 2000s up to the outbreak of the conflict in 2011, that droughts drove populations into uh, urban centres, that triggered unrest and etc. When you look at those Causal change, they fall apart. It, it, the drought was in the wrong place in relationship to where the unrest broke out, the migration um, happened in different areas. It was actually changes in subsidies for food, if anything, um, and uh, land use uh, changes to liberalization of people's uh, access to people's land that, that changed things, if anything. And of course, it's very convenient for people who've started wars to blame it on the climate. The, the Sudan conflict is another one which is often called a climate war. I think it's too early to make that direct connection and I think it's dangerous to make it too glibly uh, in the sense that it's often the migrants who are used as the chain of causation, that climate change causes migration and migrants cause security issues. Now, that's not good news if you're a migrant, which is already bad news if you're, a, uh, if you're an involuntary migrant. So I would caution against that. At the same time, um, the links between uh, the tightening of ecological space, so the carbon budget is disappearing in front of our eyes, and we've seen the squabbling in Glasgow at COP26 about who has the right to emit the last part of the carbon budget. And you might say that's not geopolitics, that's not international security politics. But in a sense, climate change has never been about nature as such. Today, climate change is about development. It's about critical development space. It's about global justice. It's also about it's also about the, um, the, the way that uh, the, the, the future is imagined. Um, so so what, what kind of a future do we envisage for ourselves and what kind of political and economic system are we going to have in, in the future? So given all that, there's, it's no wonder that the negotiations are so tough and so hard when vital national interests like access to energy and development are at, are at stake. So in that sense, in the non-military sense, it's very easy to see that climate change is a matter of national interest in the traditional sense of being in states being in competition with each other. Added to that, you have... Um, climate change as an external threat. So international politics used to be complicated enough in the sense that we needed to keep track of our adversaries or our friends. We had other social actors we had to look at. Um, And security was about having a big enough alliance if you're a small country like Denmark, or being strong enough if you're a big country that needs to fend for itself. But now we also, everybody has to factor in this external threat. And climate's not the only one. My title is Professor of Global Security Challenges, although I more or less only focus on climate. But there are many of these um, planetary threats, in a sense. Uh, artificial intelligence, potentially. Nuclear weapons. We've created a world where we have the potential to wipe everything out, so to speak, not wanting to put a damper on your, on your afternoon or evening. Um, so we have a new dimension to international politics, uh, that we're not alone as, as human societies. Uh, we have another actor out there which is very, very powerful and potentially very destructive for our futures. And the final way that it's connected, I think, is militaries. Now the, the U.S. military is a, has a bigger carbon footprint than, I think, Sweden. So it's like a, major, a sort of medium-sized country. And we all know that U.S is position as the leading geopolitical power is based on military supremacy to a, to, a, to a degree. It's also based on having the strongest economy. And that whole system is built on fossil fuels, on oil. And you'll notice that the military is exempt from the negotiations in Glasgow. And when, um, when the US politicians were challenged on that last week, their answer was, so uh, somebody challenged them and said, how can you stand here being serious about climate change when you've just increased the military budget spending? Um, I can't remember how much, but it's quite a lot. Um, and the answer was, well, climate change is also a security issue now, so we need a big military. So in that sense, the circle is, 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 is completed, and, and you realise that that the the... the the battle to get rid of our addiction to fossil fuels is also going to affect and perhaps be dependent on reducing our dependency on large military machines at the same time. So those are a few of the touch points that I think I have time for. Uh,
1: Professor Velipek, Russia is at present the fourth biggest emitter of uh, carbon and is a large oil and gas exporter. Um, and temperatures in Russia are rising at an unprecedented speed more than the rest of the world, especially in Russia, Ar- Russia's Arctic. Um, so how does Russia find itself in the global discussion on climate change?
3: That's a good question. And I, I think I will start with the kind of historical outlook on, the, on the how, how this also policies, but also discourses, narratives have changed. And if we start from the <clears throat> when Kyoto Protocol was was on the table, early 2000s, and of course Russia played an important role in making that protocol um, be uh, accepted uh, back in 2005, 2004. Um, at that time, it was considered. The Climate policy was considered as, as a kind of economic issue whether it 's good for Russia to be part of global climate governance or not uh, and the, the phenomenon itself was discussed if you look, looked at Russian media back in the year two thousand around it was there were skeptics or denialists, but there were also mainstream uh, well, global mainstream climate scientists, Russian origin. Arguing that this is a, a real threat to us, we have to act and so forth. And um, well, Russia joined uh, Kyoto Protocol, but actually didn't didn't do anything. All the joint implementation projects and all this that could have been also economically good for Russia didn't really really succeed. Um, but if you look at the, the situation, how it changed, and and also the tone, well ever since Kyoto Protocol, the official kind of argument of Russian government vis-a-vis international audiences has been that, OK, uh, we are part of the process. We're part of the process. But that, that, as you said in the introduction, now we are in the situation actually that Russia is really starting to define. It's something that we need to do for or against. And um, if you look at the early 2000s, um, yes, in the year 2003, 4, 5, it was this discussion in the Russian society, uh, this denialist against uh, cl- mainstream climate scientists uh, having equal access to media. But I argue that actually back in 2010, and if you remember 2010, at least in Finland, it was really hot summer, And it was extremely hot summer in Russia. It was a heat wave that lasted more than a month. And uh, huge forest fires took place and field fires and bog fires, everything. And lots of people died in Russia because of the heat wave, but also because of the smog. And if you look at the polls before 2010 and how people in Moscow and big cities, for example, how they viewed climate change, quarter, one third of people said that climate change is a problem. After 2010, and this heat wave, it was uh, three quarters of Russians who said that climate change is a problem and we, and, and we have to do something for it. And uh, what, we, what was the reaction of the Putin uh, regime government uh, entourage? Was that after 2010, we saw in a state-controlled media, which by that time was already by far state-controlled, uh, we saw kind of um, the, the climate scientist was taken away. Uh, the way climate issue in general was discussed in the media was diminished, but when it was discussed, it was discussed by those denialists, and um, that you could say lasted for a decade and only um, and, and uh, the reasons are of course very uh, kind of <laughs> um, Self-evident uh, reasons are that the Putin regime and, and today's Russia is so highly dependent on hydrocarbons, so highly dependent on fossil energy, not only in economic terms, but also in terms of continuation uh, of the regime, self-prevalence of the, of the regime, so to say, uh, that they couldn't uh, come up with uh, policies or even a narrative in the society that climate change is a threat and what we're doing in our economy is bad. And so the reaction was that the Russian media was uh, occupied by people who talked about this climate denialist uh, discourse. And of course, the wildest ones were very much this kind of uh, conspiracy theory, kind of that global global governance is only a Western conspiracy against Russia's national interest and, and, and so forth. But what followed during that Decade the last decade, is that um, what I argue is is a kind of petro-culture or or hydrocarbon culture that's been in the making in Russia during the last 10 years or so. Um, By the, of course, big oil and gas companies, but also in in broad terms in the society, that climate change had had to be a taboo, it had to be swiped away from the kind of nationalistic discourse of Russia uh, which was built on the idea of, course, military power, but then also the Arctic, one of the directions where great power can expand. But thirdly also, uh, this um, uh, kind, of, kind of political power and wealth that oil and gas can provide for Russia <laughs> was, was part of the construction of this new kind of identity. So the, the, the narrative went that, um, and still partly goes, that. Um, in order to be a good Russian, you have to respect and you have to look up to oil and gas industry what all the good things that they are doing for us and uh, and this was um, this was uh, not very really challenged by the Russian society, which was interesting if you look at the environmental movement environmental kind of conflicts, none of them really <laughs> have been. Uh, engage with climate issues. There are local problems, yes, and, and people are protesting against waste and, and so forth, but not, not really climate. So kind of that climate uh, denialist uh, narrative of the petroculture kind of hit through. It was, it was accepted. But now, coming to COP26 and coming to year 2021, only af- uh, during the last six months, 12 months, we have seen uh, within Putin administration, within the regime, people who are really thinking that, okay, we need to do something differently. Because uh, I think first and foremost is that climate change is hurting Russia, and it's hurting also the industries that are feeding the regime, that is, the oil and gas industries. There was an issue about permafrost, and, and oil and gas is produced by far in the permafrost area, especially gas. And, and of permafrost is a threat, so in that, at least in this minimalistic <laughs> economic sense, the regime is is understanding that we we should take this uh, as a ser- serious issue. Um, and what is interesting in, in the COP, uh, what, what Russia came up, and it's interesting to see what kind of strategy they will develop. But basically, what they are trying to is this: to have the cake and eat it too, <laughs> in the sense that they are selling that our forests, yes, 20% of global forests, that's right. It's a huge carbon sink. But what Russia is trying to do is to... We will double it, which is, we can discuss it later, extremely difficult to do. We will double it just by, by renaming <laughs> those carbon, carbon kind of um, things in a, in a different way. But then business as usual when it comes to oil and gas, basically. So this is the situation today. But I'll I leave it here, we can continue.
1: Yeah, uh, just to maybe to explain what the fact is that up to 50% of the oil and gas industry is actually like the, the, the construction sites are where the gas is affected by climate change. So they're, they're actually concretely in danger of not being able to.
3: If you look at Russian geography, uh, 60% of the territory is occupied by permafrost. And 80% of Russia's gas production is in those permafrost areas. That's in the Yamal Peninsula in the up north. And about 15-20% of oil production. So in that sense, um, if you look at 10-20 uh, years from now, uh, oil production will probably go down, but gas production will maintain and be the big economic issue for Putin's Russia. Uh, then, of course, uh, perma- permafrost thaw is going to be... Uh, big issue.
1: Olaf, how do you see Russia in the context of your international relations, uh, sort of the geopolitics? Uh, is there a, you know, there's been a, a reproachment with China uh, right now under the COP, but is Russia in the loop uh, with, with um, like, China is now?
2: Um. So it was said that the biggest delegation at the COP26 summit in Glasgow was the fossil fuel delegation, the fossil fuel um, industry. And, and that's even without counting those states which are effectively very hard to distinguish from the fossil fuel lobby. The petro states, the gas states, the coal states. And Russia is part of that story. Um, and as you said, has, has this special position. And, and here we see that, that the geography really matters. What interests, what are, what are Russia's interests? I mean, you're, you're the expert on this, but, but it's obvious that um, as, a, as a country and as a regime which is built on gas, basically oil, gas, and metal, um, um, it's highly invested in the current system. Even if the welfare of the populations is threatened by climate change, unfortunately the political dynamics, I am not optimistic about Russia, but um, this is one of the, I think the general point that you can learn from that is, or that, that I think you should take from it, is that we focus very much on these negotiations between states and who can, who's gonna make the biggest promise Who's going to be the leader? And the theory that people use to think about that is a sort of rational choice, free-riding problem. So we've assumed that the problem is we all want the other people to change their economies, but we don't want to do it ourselves. And as long as the others are doing it, if we can make the right institutions, we can perhaps overcome that collective action problem. Actually, I think that's been overdone it's more important to look at domestic battles. You can see when Trump pulled the US out of the Paris Agreement, the collective action theory would predict that China would step out, that the EU would step out, because then if the big emitters are not in it, we don't want to carry the burden, but they didn't. And then we saw the US rejoin Now why did the US rejoin? Because of a change of regime domestically. So I think instead of being a sort of prisoner's dilemma, uh, those of you who've done economics or politics um, know this analogy. Um, Instead of it being a sort of game theoretic problem that we need to build an institution to manage, it's actually a collective internal distribution battle going on between those who are vested In the current system and those who want to change the system and and have different interests.
1: But you are also a specialist on geoengineering and uh, we sort of discussed prior to this uh, you know whether Russia was into this uh, geoengineering and and you said uh, that when looking at Russia's technocratic approach to things they might be, but I thought maybe you would just explain what is geoengineering and how does it actually affect international relations?
2: Okay. So we're used to thinking of basically two kinds of climate policy. One is mitigation, so preventing emissions, stopping emitting. The other one is adaptation. How do we build sea walls? How do we minimize the damages to our societies? But a third category is beginning to emerge, at least on an ideas level. It's not really a reality yet, but the ideas are being looked at. And they are basically technological interventions into the global climate system. Um, And you might think, how do you technologically intervene in the climate at the system level? Well, one type is based on the idea that if you have a greenhouse effect, which is trapping too much energy, you can reduce if you can reduce the amount of incoming energy, so a kind of global sunscreen, and I know this sounds like a James Bond movie, but there are scientists working on this, how can we reduce the incoming energy to cool the Earth, or to mask, to conceal the effects of, of increased greenhouse gas concentrations? And I can give you a few of the sort of imaginary technologies that are being looked at. One is to spray sulfur particles into the stratosphere, upper atmosphere, lower stratosphere, at about 20 or 25 kilometers up, um, which mimics what happens when a volcano erupts and sulfur is sprayed up. We know that it cools the earth down for a few years until the sulfur dissipates. So that's one technology being looked at, um, mainly just in climate models. Basically, that's all that's happened so far. They've looked at climate models and say, what happens if we turn down the sun? If we take 2% of the sun's energy out of of our model system, what happens to the climate? And of course, that looks quite good, because it doesn't look the same as the old climate. It's not the old climate that we'd go back to. It would be a new one. Why? Because greenhouse effect works by trapping um, energy, whereas this works by reflecting it. So uh, the greenhouse effect works best at the poles, or it works worst, it works most at the poles. But of course there's not much light at the poles. So you would need to, you would need to, um, yeah, we don't need, we perhaps don't need to go into the technicalities of that. But anyway, it creates new risks. It, it potentially affects rainfall patterns and things like that. That's one kind of geoengineering. The other kind is emissions in reverse. So it's basically sucking carbon back out of the air and trapping it somehow. And that's either through land use change, planting masses, millions and billions of trees, or planting biofuels, so plants that are used as as fuel for energy plants, and then trapping the carbon dioxide that comes out when you burn it. That in a way creates a sort of reverse emissions system. And this is this is also doesn't exist in real life yet. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've We've put it into, or the scientists have put it into the, the UN scenarios for how to stay under two degrees. The politicians said, climate scientists, show us how we stay under two degrees or 1.5. And the climate scientists looked, look at it and they put it into their models and they find out, ooh, that reduction in emissions curve is very steep. What if we make it less steep and then we overshoot the budget? Then we can maybe just suck the extra carbon dioxide back out of the air with these imaginary technologies. So they put them in just to see what happens. And of course it looks great, except that we don't have those technologies. It's a minor problem. Um, and it's not just a small amount of, of, of carbon removal we're talking here. In a, in a medium scenario, um, so not the most pessimistic, not the most optimistic, but a medium one, The amount of overshoot of the budget, so the the amount of excess carbon dioxide that we've put in the air, that's more than we can safely do so without bursting through the 2 degree or 1.5 degree barrier, would require um, biofuels, if we use that technology, on such a huge area that it would be equivalent to twice the surface area of India, just with biofuels. Now, obviously, that wouldn't be the, the only solution used, but it's obvious that that's not a feasible option. We don't have that amount of land, that's, that's, uh, and especially not with uh, concerns about food security, biodiversity. So we've kind of become already dependent on these ideas about geoengineering. And we've got ahead of ourselves, because they might not materialise. And if they did, they would have a lot of side effects that we wouldn't be interested in.
1: So the problem is that it's counted in, but it's actually not a reality. Yeah. yeah, so we hope it's like wishful thinking somehow put into a reality specter of international yeah. politics. Yes.
3: And if I can continue, actually, actually, you look at Russia or Canada, for example, yeah. the similar countries in that respect, that they both have large forests and, and this idea that uh, you could double your carbon, carbon sinks. Um, of course, that if you would think of the... The climate of the 20th century that could probably be partly possible. But if you look at the situation today where we're at already, already when it comes to climate change, that's highly unlikely because, yes, there's the permafrost thaw. That's also actually deforestation factor in permafrost regions where you have forests. That's one. And then you have forest fires. Last summer, uh, territory of two Denmarks, was burned down in the Russian forests. Uh, In 10 years, 9% of Russia's forest uh, territory has been diminished. So these are the tendencies that we have. And then you have countries like Russia are arguing that we're going to double it. How that's possible in a situation where climate change is is a runaway climate change already. So in that sense, I I would be even more skeptical about these uh, kind of geoengineering kind of uh, solutions.
1: But we were discussing whether you would think that Russia is, is sort of secretly trying to develop, uh, like also methods for. I know that they had the system of creating good weather, for example, when there's a you know, first May parade, and uh, so it's not sort of very strange to the thinking of how how the the Russian uh, sort of trying to fix things when you need it
3: for sure for sure and and of course fits very well this kind of thinking to the kind of when it comes to oil and gas and coal that business as usual can continue when you have some something like this at hand concerning uh, geoengineering also concerning these different kind of gadgets that you can use (laughs) to to cool down the earth Um, yes there are there is uh, also um a long kind of scientific uh, history in Soviet Union and Russia concerning these kind of, uh, and actually I have myself experienced it, it because I was in I was an eight year eight year old kid back in 1980 in Moscow Olympics and they used this kind of some kind of silver oxide they sprayed it into the clouds so the clouds rained down before before Moscow and then it was clear weather so. Um, uh, th- th- there, there is, uh, there is history on that side, and, and for sure, uh, if you look at the climate science in Russia, um, it is uh, very different, also from the, from the Western uh, or international, you could say, climate science in that sense. That the Russian climate science relies on, on, on kind of historical data more than the Western uh, climate science is relying on, on these kind of different computer models, basically, modeling of, of climate science. So that, that's also partly explains, partly the, the kind of skeptical, de- denialist approach to climate issues in general. Um, and, um, but yes, this kind of technocratic approach, the uh, um, read from the Soviet kind of scientific model and thinking, uh, very much goes hand in hand with the geoengineering approach. But actually, uh, I haven't... Uh, been following the Russian climate discourse for for some time and haven't really seen uh, kind of official announcements about this geoengineering approach because thus far it has been more or less denial of the whole issue. But it's interesting to follow whether this will pop up. No wonder if it will.
1: But at the COP26 it was a very high delegation. Putin didn't come but that is because he's only travelled once in the whole pandemic period and that was when he met with Biden in in Geneva, but um, uh, so, but it was a high-level delegation: Chubai uh, his special envoy on climate. Uh, I, I think also Petrushev, uh So there were. It was a very like his uh, head of the Security Council. So it's also affiliated with security somehow. Uh, uh, the climate uh, cooperation, you could say.
3: For sure, for sure, in, in many respects. And, and in that way that you actually explained the, the glo- global system, that how actually environmental issues have become hardcore, uh, geopolitical and security issues. But also, actually, I think it, um, the, one of the reasons why Russia is activating itself, it's not by far the only reason, but is the fact that EU is active and others are active. You mentioned about this, that, that the, the regime change in the, in the US, uh, kind of, uh, according to this game, game theory approach, everyone should have dropped out and, 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 uh, when, and when, when Trump came into power. But if you look at it from a Russian perspective, actually, what we, what we saw is that actually these four years, four Trump years, uh, kind, of, kind of built this kind of uh, hydrocarbon axis between Trump and Russia, and during those four years, Russia had kind of extra time to do nothing on the climate issue, not to consider it as any kind of issue. But now, since we have uh, Biden administration, we have COP where all the uh, nations, at least, are discursively arguing that this is a this is a major problem. So of course, Russia has to be there because Russia wants to be uh, part of all the all the global kind of major major developments. And in that sense, this high level um, kind of um, Taking part in as as a high-level kind of group of people from Russia is understandable, but actually coming back to EU, I mean this is this is partly uh, why I why I see that Russia is activating because EU's policies, everyone is I mean people around the world can be very very skeptical about EU's uh, kind of very moralistic you could say um, policies and objectives, but but certainly for example the Green Deal. And the carbon tax or the CBAM uh, process is something that is uh, kind of taken seriously in Russia. Um, on the discursive level, the administration, Putin, and all the others are arguing that CBAM carbon tax is bad, bad, bad. It's against Russian interest. You're you're just trying to hurt us. It's protectionism. But at the same time, when you look at Russian industries, they think, okay, carbon tax is coming. We are we're trying to adjust our systems and decarbonization is starting (laughs) in those industries for example look at the metal industries it's starting and that's um, for 10 years russia has been arguing for eu no carbon tax no carbon tax but actually now you can see that it's actually the right way to move
1: can climate change actually create peace, or you know, can you know, the cooperation, the imperative of climate change, can that actually be a way to you know, overcome some of the, our geopolitical differences that we have uh, in terms of Russia and, and the EU, in terms of Russia and the US? So I'd like to start with you, veli uh,
3: For sure, yeah. for sure. And it has to do very much with uh, decarbonization, but especially energy transition and the possibilities that energy transition has, and the possibility that renewables have. I'm a geographer, so I look at the world from very much spatial perspective and and spatial processes. And if I look at the um, kind of uh, link between political power, authoritarian regimes, and and the spatialities of oil and gas, they go hand in hand, you can see. Okay, Norway is an outlier. But if you look at globally, uh, the more you are dependent on oil and gas, the more authoritarian you are. And of course, the more authoritarian you are, probably you're not very nice to your, towards your own people and not very nice towards other, other nations. Um, and partly the explanation is that uh, the geographies of oil and gas are very point source, they are very centralized. And that helps this regime in power to maintain their power, because major part of the money comes from there, but also, in spatial terms, your money comes from very minuscule territory. So you're not interested in developing the society in general. It, it's enough for you just to keep this oil well and gas gas well. But when it comes to renewables, you have everything from roof house solar to huge wind, wind parks. So the geographies of renewables is challenging in a very uh, profound way uh, the authoritarian regimes uh, of course it doesn't mean that if you are relying on renewables you cannot be authoritarian but it's going to be much more difficult mm. and and in that sense i see that energy transition has very much to do with also peace, peace. yeah
1: and what would you say i we, i know we're cooperating with uh, Russia in the Arctic, for example, in in the Arctic Council on climate issues uh, around the Baltic Sea states, there's also cooperation on climate and environment. Do you see there's a potential for cooperation on climate which actually transcends uh, security boundaries?
2: I think there's a potential and it's a great question because I tend to be a little bit of a pessimist or a realist, depending how you view it. Um, I think there are two ways of looking at this. I think the usual one is we assume the worse climate change gets, the more we will do something about it, the more we will be motivated to act against it. And in that scenario, if that logic wins out, then there's a lot of potential because we have a common enemy. Uh, Let's not think of nature as an enemy, but we have a common challenge And maybe that can bring us together. And and we saw, so China-U.S. relations are rock bottom at the moment. But we did see cooperation at COP26 between the U.S. and China. So potentially there there is a possibility there. The other option, which I think we need to think more about now, is that climate breakdown could lead to less multilateral, less liberal, more authoritarian. We know that authoritarian regimes thrive on chaos. We know that after the financial crisis, we see a surge in authoritarianism. We saw it in the 1930s. There is a historical precedent for saying social crisis creates backlashes. And in that scenario, I think we're beginning to see a right-wing or a, a, an authoritarian climate strategy, which is not just denial, let's not talk about it. No, an actual nationalist reactionary climate policy. And what does that look like? You Basically, it looks at the threat of climate migrants. It looks at nationalism as a kind of lifeboat ethics solution strengthening of borders, the increase in military capacity to cope with the, the coming chaos, um, and a general exploitation of, of a sort of shock. I mean, there's a very famous book called The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which I think has a very interesting idea in it, which is that extreme policies can be pushed through in times of crisis when the body politic, when the, when the society is in shock, Rapid reforms can be put, put in place. And they could be transitioning. It could be a rapid transition, it could be a decarbonization where we finally get galvanized, but it could also be the opposite a retrenchment. Um, yeah, sorry to bring that option up.
1: So, what is the sort of the response of the internet? You know, what, what are you, as a researcher, what do you say uh, if that's a tendency towards more right wing? anti-climate policy or retrenchment policies. Uh, is that being discussed at COP26, how it affects actually uh, you know, our policies and, and what are the potential and how to you know, yeah, work against that?
2: I, I think COP26, because of the UN process, is focused on some very narrow agendas. The main thing that happened in Glasgow, apart from more promises, which may or may not happen, Is that the rule book for the carbon market, global carbon market, was agreed. So now you can manage, you can you can fulfill your climate promises by buying sinks in Russia, by buying forests in Africa, in Asia. And um, so so that was the main thing that was on the table. And that was, of course, a fossil fuel interest, because if you can buy if the rich countries can buy their national contributions abroad, it will slow the transition away from fossil. Um, what was your original question?
1: Yeah, well, that was actually, you know, what, what, what are you then thinking? How can uh, yeah. we... Uh...
2: But the good thing that happened yeah. at COP was that for the first time coal was mentioned. And why is that so important? We've spent 30 years talking about emissions. So we've been looking at the smokestack, the chimney, and say, how do we stop these gases coming out? But we've not been thinking about extraction. Oh, we've been thinking about it, but we haven't negotiated about it. And at COP, Denmark and Costa Rica launched this project called Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, BOGA. Dan Jensen wants to be the BOGA man, I think. <laughs> uh, so, BOGA is about turning attention to extraction. How do we, we know we have 60% of known reserves have to stay in the ground because we haven't got the carbon budget to burn them? So how do we agree? And that's what I think they should have been negotiating. You keep yours on the ground, we'll keep ours on the ground. If you cancel your oil exploration there, we'll cancel our oil exploration there. I think that should have been the agenda. Not a carbon market where you can buy hot air in Russia um, and, and create all kinds of creative accounting loopholes.
1: And we, I, we also discussed, you know, is Russia up to the challenge, you know? It, it will take a total reform, actually, as you were saying, if you, you go towards renewables, but also, but at the same time, you know, when I was in living in Moscow in 88, it was minus 35 degrees in the winter when I went out. Today, when you go out in January, it's maybe zero, minus five. So there's been a... a t- Really, really, changed in temperatures, also in the winter time, in in Russia. Now I can only say for Moscow, but generally speaking, so uh, people can really feel the change, I guess. Uh, but are they up to it? You know, can they? Can the Russian regime actually change the way that they do things? How do you see these things?
3: Well, I think that there are two, two things. First is is the popular understanding of the problem. And what you uh, implied. Um, and I think it's changing. Yes, for 20 years, Putin and others have been discussing that climate change is good for Russia. We need less fuels. That was his famous quote from 2003. And this is maybe for many, many Russians. OK, it's, it's better for us. We need to use less energy for, to heat our cities. But at the same time, if you look at the last 10 years, that the real problems of climate change, the flooding, the heat waves, are really hitting in, and, and people are understanding. So it, it's really educated people, so they understand what the problem is. But they're part of the petro-culture also, partly. They understand that with, with oil money, they get all the also good things in their life. So in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problematic situation. Um, but when it comes to Russia's potential to do differently, it has to come from within, it has to come from, from inside Russia. Understanding that this petroculture is something that we need to slash. We need to come up with the new identity for Russia in that sense. Okay, we can be great power, but it's it's not really an, a, a petrol power or, or oil power, but a renewable power. And Russia really has huge potential in, the, in this field. It's It's really, really, really underutilized. And Russia has... From all that, if you look at wind power, you look at solar power, you can look at the, geothermal, you can even nuclear, of course, this is what they're partly developing, but, but all, within all this, uh, 0.3% of Russia's total energy is new renewables. That tells you where we are at today. Yeah. But there's huge potential. There are different calculations that Russia could easily produce its electricity fully with renewables, like Norway is doing, uh, and actually sell that electricity, green electricity. Uh, there's, of course, discussion about the hydrogen, but it's, it's partly also kind of similar as, as this geoengineering and, and carbon sinks, in a sense, because hydrogen gives uh, uh, extra time for, for gas production, because it's thought that in the first place it would be uh, so-called blue hydrogen that would be produced with methane, that is uh, gas, and then in the later phases, maybe, with, with uh, renewable electricity. Um, but yes in, in many of the uh, kind of renewable world dimensions Russia, Russia could be a major player and could be a major actually economic winner if it would invest into these infrastructures but it's not investing and that's a really really I think that's a security problem not only via the climate change loop that that we heard um, but but only uh, because of uh, the regime it's probably going to be the same regime for, for some time. And if its economy is going down, it's not going to be a very, very kind of friendly regime, unfortunately. If Russia is not investing in, in renewables.
1: So I'd, on these words, I'd like to say thank you to uh, Professor Olaf Kauri and to Professor Veli-Pekka And thank you to you all for coming. Thank you to the Royal Library uh, and uh, for the cooperation. So, And I think... Um, I am at least much wiser today after these, this hour. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Du har til en podcast fra det Husk at du kan på i podcast app. Hvis du kunne lide hvad du hørte, så med andre der også kunne være Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jakobsen.